You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it, and uh, people out there are listening, I think. <laughs> they seem I, to be. <laughs> they seem to be. Some of, some of you guys are letting us know, and we appreciate that. Um, I, uh, I don't always have a chance to respond, but I, it's always nice to see the comments, mm-hmm. and so I do appreciate it. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same way, and sometimes I am terribly forgetful, and I don't have a media person, so if the response takes a little time, I do apologize. Um, but we try to get to you as uh, soon as we can. Uh, yeah, it it's nothing personal. We really do like getting the feedback, and we really do appreciate everyone. It's just I've, so do know, it for us. <laughs> full, full time. Uh, I'm working a full time job on top of this, and have two kids, and you know, all that stuff. So anyway, but that being said, um, I'm eager to get into it because we just uh, left a few minutes ago on our time. And so we have uh, mm-hmm. kind of le- left on a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're picking up uh, in Second uh, Samuel 22. We're still going through that psalm. And we were talking about how David had called and God saved him and how David had actually had the audacity to say, <clears throat> excuse me, that he called and expected God to respond. So I just, I'm getting choked up thinking about it. So anyway, <laughs> as we're moving into this next section, uh, this to me, this is where the psalm just takes off. It really becomes a thing of beauty. I, I just, I, I love it because now we have the process. We don't just have the outcome. And what we need to remember is David's not just a king. David is not just a psalmist. David is a prophet. And so what prophets do when they speak is they're telling us, this is what's going on in the spiritual realm. This Mm -hmm. is what I have witnessed within the spiritual realm. And so uh, when he says this, he he uh, is equipping us to encourage us in our faith. And because remember, this psalm isn't just David's personal psalm. This becomes a psalm that's put into the psalm book. This is a psalm that all of Israel and all of us who honor God and and use this this book called the Bible as our guide to faith are, are encouraged to sing. We're asked to participate in it. And so when David describes what's going on in the spiritual, spiritual realm for him, he's actually moving it beyond that and saying, this is what happens for all of us. And, you know, that should just encourage us to keep calling out and to keep praising God for the things he does on our behalf. Because even though all of us may not have the ability to look and see what God is doing, we, we have to, um, I, I think we find something came with that talk the the idea that this is going on on our behalf should just just blow us away mm-hmm. so i'm gonna pick up in verse five it says for the waves of death encompassed me the torrents of destruction assailed me the cords of shield entangled me the snares of death confronted me so 
David goes above and beyond to tell us whatever it is he is facing is a spiritual threat. It's not just a physical threat. I mean, obviously, there were plenty of physical threats in David's lifetime, but David traces them all back to a spiritual root, and he gives us this um, this very poetic, very vivid imagery, and you know this this um, this event that David's describing is playing out on all levels. It, it's not confined to one or the other, and I do think that's one advantage that the ancient cultures had over us is they don't see this this arbitrary bifurcation between the spiritual and the tangible. Mm-hmm. They're not two separate things. They 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 flow together. They 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 play off each other. They're interlocked. And so um you know, I think we need to remember that and we as Christians in particular where we we say we are people of faith and that our reality, our truth is defined in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to be remembering that our spiritual truth and reality it is every bit as impactful as anything physical and tangible we might encounter, and we need to live accordingly. Mm-hmm. And so um, what's readily apparent in the English is that we don't just have torrents of destruction, uh, or sorry, that's not readily available, uh, apparent in the English. We don't have just torrents of destruction. We have torrents of Belial. And so, you know, we've talked about this. This is a word that's appeared in Judges. It's a word that's appeared in Samuel. um, And it's paired with Sheol. Now, Sheol is a very interesting concept, uh, mostly because we don't know a lot about it. The Bible really doesn't tell us a lot of information about Sheol. And, um, you know, usually when we talk about Sheol, it is confined to prophetic or poetic statements. So a lot of times it gets dismissed. And so we have these idioms that we kind of have to unravel to kind of get beneath the language to see what's happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just part of how translation is done, is trying to determine when an idiom should be translated literally versus when an idiom should be translated um, according to what what it means because you know uh, we talk about hot potatoes or inside baseball or you know and when we say things like that we aren't talking about potatoes or baseball you know the, those are words that we use to describe situations that are completely different and i have a puppy in my lap uh hector get, get down sorry <laughs> hector wants to be part of the show everyone <laughs> so simple definitions of well, idioms oh go ahead well um go ahead and finish your thought uh, sorry. i was gonna Simple definitions of words within idioms do not give you the meaning, okay? It, it's that simple. They, they don't tell you what is actually being said. Um, so let's, let's talk about some examples. Uh, I, I was brainstorming a few. All thumbs. What, what, well, <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't realize uh, where you were going. Fries, yeah, yeah. A few fries short of a Happy Meal. Um, out of sight. Dynamite, uh, feeling blue, pushing up daisies. I mean, we still use idioms. They're still part of our uh, our day to day communication. But just because we we use idioms doesn't mean that what we're saying isn't real. It just means that we're expressing them in a way that our culture and our um, our society is comfortable with understanding them. And so, since 
prophecy or since sorry, a prophecy is delivered in poetic and hyperbolic speech. Statements require even more unraveling. But you had something so well, I was also going to say, uh, you know, for for so long, the a lot of translators translated Sheol as hell mm-hmm. in various translations. And so I don't think that has been I don't think that was a helpful translation no. um, because it really uh, lends itself towards some some interesting, at least theology, if not some really bad theology at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that it it lends itself towards the idea of hell being a, a kind of an organized kingdom <laughs> that assails yes. people um where we've talked about that before <laughs> where you know the, the it satan's not in charge of hell um right. you know he might be called the prince of darkness or things of that from time to time but that's in reference to darkness not uh, it, darkness representing nothing or just simply evil things it's that mm-hmm. It's not like it's an organized structure with a concise uh, flow chart of who's in charge of what and, right. and things there's like no that. There's no ruling. There's no ruling in hell. You know, there's that saying, it's better to, to uh, rule in hell than serve in heaven. And there's no ruling in hell, not even for right. Satan. And so, uh, so, yeah, I think that one of the things we need do need to do is to look at what we actually know about Sheol. And, of course, we want to look at scripture for that and get as complete as the pictures I can offer in a short time span. Um, man, I, I did a lot of different reading and it, honestly, studies on Sheol can get crazy. And so I, I wanted to kind of stick with what can we look at in scripture and say, yes, this is accurate. Um, that's just a really good place to start. And then everything that, you know, kind of branches off of there, we need to be a little bit more careful with. Sure. So. Sheol's definitely the place of the dead. That's kind of, I don't think I need to back that up with scriptural uh, reference. Uh, darkness is a part of Sheol, Lamentations 3.6. It's silent. That's in Psalms 115.17. It has depths. So there are some levels to it, but we're going to talk about those a little bit more. That's in Psalm 86.13. It's referred to as down or something you descend into. Uh, Psalms 139.8 is one example. There's multiple examples. It has gates. That's Isaiah thirty-eight ten. It has bars. That's in Job seventeen sixteen. Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Job refer to Sheol interchangeably with the grave, and so it's frequently put together with parallelisms, where you'll have one line referring to Sheol and one line referring to the grave. Mm-hmm. Uh, warriors and kings are in Sheol. That's in Ezekiel thirty-two twenty-one and twenty-seven. The Rephaim are in Sheol. That's Psalms eighty-eight. Jacob, Hezekiah, Job, and David believe they will be in Sheol. Now, this is where things get really tricky. And so the verses for those are Genesis 37, 35, Isaiah 38, 10, Job 17, 13, Psalm 30, um, verse 3. The righteous will be raised up from Sheol or ransomed from Sheol. Psalms 30, uh, 30 verse 3, Psalms 86, 3, 49, 15. God is the master over Sheol, not Satan. And so it does not separate believers from God. And that's a very important point. And that's in Psalms 139.8. And do you see how this could be confusing to like an (laughs) eight-year-old or nine-year-old or even 12, 13, your teenager reading the Bible when you translate Sheol as hell? Hell. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Because um, 
you know, I think it's confusing to a lot of adults. And I think mm -hmm. for a long time, and I still have a lot of, you know, muddiness in the way I'm thinking about it. I, I get that because it, again, it's not defined with a real clear cut map. Why? Because in Judaism, what happens after you die isn't a major point of study. What you need to be concerned about is your life here and now and what re you're responsible for in this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not taking care of that, then what business do you have to even worry about what's happening later? And if you are taking care of what's in front of you, what time do you have to worry about? <laughs> you know, so, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's one of those things that you, you kind of file it under the, the heading of this is something that God's got taken care of. And you just have faith that the right things are going to happen. So, um, so the problem that everybody has um, is basically everybody who dies in the Old Testament ends up in Sheol without regard for whether or not they're quote unquote good or evil, righteous or wicked, an Israelite or a Gentile. Everyone who dies ends up here. Now, if we're referring to a grave, that makes perfect sense because everybody who dies ends up in a grave. And this is based on the fact that we are specifically told that evil people are going to be there. But then there's other times where we have people like David and Jacob saying that this is their fate. And Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 22, and then again in 9, 2 through 3, says that all of life shares the same fate and ends in the same place. And referring uh, most rabbis and Jewish commenta uh, um, commentaries believe this is a reference to Sheol. And it's not a place of punishment. Here's the, the thing that helps clarify this for me. At least not for everyone. In Job 14, 10 through 14, Job calls it a place of renewal, a hiding place until God's wrath passes, and that God will remember the people in Sheol. So there's, there's two solutions for, for what Sheol kind of encompasses. Um, and we're going to go through both of them and, and talk about maybe what might be the best one. Those verses in which um, men of God contemplate their future in Sheol are, you know, hyperbolic exclamations that, you know, they, they reveal the, the emotional distress and trauma of someone in a bad situation, and it may not accurately reflect the truth of Sheol. And so the support for that is primarily comes out of Proverbs fifteen fourteen, and it says, the path of life leads upwards for the prudent that he may be turned away from Sheol beneath. And this has been read to mean that Sheol can be avoided as the righteous may ascend towards God. I, I see where they're coming from. Um, and, and it makes sense. But then the other alternative is that um, they're raised to, to, well, before we get to the other alternative, when they're being raised up, that they're actually being re reunited with family members. And we have multiple instant instances about this idea of being reunited in death with family. Uh, and this is supposed to express a positive view of death. And Sheol seems to be reserved for the death of the wicked and those who die in an untimely manner. Now, how the, the wicked and those who die in an untimely manner uh, overlap and converge to wind up both of them in Sheol, I, I don't really understand. Um, but more commonly, and this is kind of what I lean towards, is Sheol is seen to be divided into compartments that separates the righteous and the wicked. And so um, 
many commentators read Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus as a confirmation of that. That's in Luke 16, 19 through 31. So, you know, the, the rich man and Lazarus are both dead. They can see each other. They can kind of converse a little bit. Um, obviously, not heaven and hell as we have thought of it. So there's something else going on there. Right. Proverbs, and so I'll let people read that at their leisure. Uh, Proverbs 7, 27 suggests that shield is divided into compartments or chambers of death. And Isaiah describes one of these as the far reaches of the pit. That's Isaiah 14, 15. And Ezekiel talks about the uttermost parts of the pit, Ezekiel 32, uh, 23. But even with these hints and suggestions, there's no concrete description of how these compartments or chambers are ordered or what they house. We really have to wait until, this was the fun part, the book of Enoch. So the book of Enoch actually goes into more information. And what I find to be interesting is that while many Christians reject Enoch as having any bearing or you know, any influence on their understanding of Scripture, actually a lot of pop Christianity comes from the ideas we find in Enoch. Um, so in chapter 22, Raphael uh, guides Enoch through the abode of the dead. And it's described and it's as not a, the Ninja Turtle, oh, right? <laughs> exactly, and and not the Renaissance artist either. Uh, but the described, other one. yeah. <laughs> and that sums up the the age difference between me and Nathan. <laughs> well, also, you were also an art major, right? Well, so and the Ninja that. Turtles came after I was. Yeah. Anyway, we we digress. Uh, but anyway, he. he Raphael guides Enoch through the abodes of the dead, and it's described as a large and high mountain. And inside the mountain are four compartments. And he explains the purpose for each compartment. One is a room for the righteous, and it's a place with a spring of water and with life, light. Um, the second place is a place for sinners who were punished in their lifetimes, and they're awaiting eternal punishment. So you know, somebody who was caught, put on trial, and had to go to jail, but so they had some of their punishment. Uh, the third is a place for those who were killed and were waiting to be avenged, which I thought that was kind of interesting. And the fourth were um, was reserved for sinners who had accomplished, were very accomplished in their wrongdoings, and who will eventually be punished, but they hadn't been punished yet. And so Enoch is among some of the earliest writings we have, if it's not the earliest writing on uh, Sheol's structure and function. But at the point this psalm is written, we don't, we don't have that kind of um, sophisticated thought about the purpose and function or structure of Sheol even. Um, we don't have any evidence that there's such a complex um, systematic about that shield. So while it kind of helps us today to go, okay, well, this could be what they're talking about and to have a, a, a fuller, um, more illuminated idea about it, we need to remember that David's ideas are not the sophisticated yet. And so we don't know why. Uh, we don't know, you know, uh, why there's not, you know, just an immediate explanation why God doesn't outline what Sheol is or how it functions yet. 
Uh, we don't even know if if Enoch, the book of Enoch, uh, accurately describes Sheol because uh, we've discussed this before. Enoch, very important, uh, very influential, uh, very um, respected during the time of Christ, quoted in the New Testament, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time not canonized, did not enjoy that protection of canonization. So something that's worthwhile, I think, to consider and something worthwhile to to question and can be helpful, but we need to be, you know, keep a little bit of doubt. Sure. Keep, keep a little bit of skepticism might be a better word. So right now, all we really know about Sheol and all we can really know for sure that David knows about Sheol is that it is the land of the dead. And so, you know, that's sufficient. Hold on one second. Hector, can we go chew that someplace <laughs> It's okay. I can't hear it coming through the <laughs> uh, microphone. Okay. So it's, it, loud. it's probably fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, I was wondering what was going on. Oh, is there an emergency? No, just, just a poppy. Uh, so, okay. Um, so, okay. David at this point, according to everything we can glean from the, the biblical text, David probably sees Sheol as just, that's where the dead go. Right. You know, a grave is synonymous for a reason at this point. And so that's even factoring in other Psalms that, um, that David writes concerning Sheol. Yeah. Well, I or, mean, and other, other cultures have ideas of this, um, like, you know, I see it in the Greek. So Hades is just where the dead happen mm-hmm. to go. And then those who, you know, who are particularly being punished, go to Tartarus. You know, it's, right. it's a very different thing. Two different, two different things. Yeah. Now, what David does say that he knows about Sheol, and this is from other Psalms, is that he dreads it. He believes God has authority in Sheol, but he also says those in Sheol can't praise God. So that's kind of interesting. And he says that the righteous will be freed from from Sheol. So um, within this passage, we have waves of death, torrents of Sheol, or cords cords of Sheol, sorry, Torrents of Belial, waves of death, torrents of Belial, uh, cords of Sheol, snares of death. And all this together points to this idea that David saw his misfortune or his circumstance as the manifest result of evil personified in human beings. But ultimately, they've got a spiritual basis, and it's going to have spiritual consequences. Therefore, it's only fitting that he makes an appeal to God for a spiritual solution. So in verse 7, we're going to see an interesting shift where we are given a glimpse of what happens in the heavens when David cries out for help. And this is my favorite, favorite part. He says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and, he, and my cry came to his ears. So we should really pause and think about how wild this verse is and how it would have sounded to someone in David's culture. So a person, a mere human being can call out to God. Number one, that with no ceremony, no ritual, no sacrifice, just call out that nobody got to do that. If you wanted to talk to the gods, you had to travel to their temple. You had to bring the appropriate sacrifices, pay off the the appropriate priest. You had to be wearing the right garments, have the right haircut. People might not let you in. Like there could 
actually be guards who said, nope, you can't come in here for whatever reason. And David's saying, you know what? All you got to do is call out and God's going to hear you. Um, it's stated as if it's a fact. And this is what I think is really cool because there's no, like, there's no caveat. There's no clause that about, oh, well, you've got to be this good or you have to be this tall. You know, there, there's none of that. It, it's just call out, use your voice and call it to God. And so, you know, this idea is in some ways isn't so crazy that a king can do it. Again, the representative of a God on earth. But the, I, the fact that this is the same psalm that we find in Psalm 18, and I keep going back to this because I think a lot of times when we read these biblical stories, it's like, of course God showed up to him. He's a hero of faith. And yet when we realize that David takes everything he's learned and everything he's been a part of and witnessed and says, this is just as true for everyone else as it is for me, that should actually register with us. It shouldn't be just something we go, oh, well, that's nice. Right. So now um, Arbanel makes an interesting uh, distinction. We talked about Arbanel before. He's one of uh, the rabbis, and he claims that in Second Samuel, heard, the word that we um, translate as heard, is in the past tense. So, so God is praise, or so David is praising God for something that has happened prior to the psalm being written. He says in Psalm 18, heard is in the future tense to teach us that we should have confidence in God's response to sincere prayers. And so I really like that. And the word there is shma. Um, it, it, it's in mm. the imperfect in both uh, passages. So um, for the, the language nerds, the imperfect tense finds, you know, it, it's tense really in um, context. Uh, context. Thank you. That's the word. So that's, that's, you've got to look what's around it to determine whether it's a completed, uh, you know, not a completed act. Imperfect is not completed, but whether it's past or it's future. And so I, I do like that distinction because if, you, if you're reading through and you're just reading it in the Hebrew, uh, you've got to kind of make that judgment call on how you're reading it. And so to have a rabbi kind of say, hey, you know, this is how you should read it. David's saying things in the past God can be praised for. But when you read it, you should be praising him for things in the future. Uh, that, that, that's a pretty big statement from a rabbi. rabbi. So, hmm. uh, and you know, those are the kind of tidbits I like to pick out of the rabbinic writings. Now, the other issue, and one of the reasons why people kind of doubt whether or not David actually wrote the psalm is because he references God in his temple. And we know that in David's day, God is not in his temple as far as the temple in Jerusalem because it hasn't been built yet. And so David tells us the solution for this. And this is the great thing about this Psalm as I've been working through it, it's like, I will like write out this big explanation and defense for, you know, what's being said. And then like, I get four or five lines down and it's like, Oh, David explains it. <laughs> you know? I, I, I don't need to go to this work because David is really looking at uh, what the um, objections to his words might be. And he, he's like, well, let's just cut that off right here. So uh, David tells us where he envisions the, the temple to be. Now, the, um, he doesn't do it in this psalm, in this instance here, 
But in Psalms 11, 4a, he tells us exactly where God's temple is located. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So there is a temple in heaven is what he's saying. Isaiah 6, 1 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robes filling the temple. So again, we have this idea of a temple that is not of this earth. It is in the heavens. Uh, Micah 1, uh, we have this description of God in the temple coming down to enact justice, and he's coming down from the heavens to the earth to enact uh, justice. So David isn't saying God came over to help him from the house next door, but rather that God who resides in heaven will lower himself to respond to the cries of men and not just any man, uh, not just a king, but all men, all people who have faith enough to call out to God and, and believe that he's going to act on their re- behalf. And then David tells us God's response. He, he describes it. And so I'm going to read several. Uh, no, I'm not. Never mind. Ignore that. Verse 8. Uh, it says, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. So God's anger is said to be the cause of all this cosmic activity. And it's this ability to shake the earth, to make his creation tremble before his rage as evidence that he is the, the creator with authority over all creation, and that no other God possesses this kind of authority. No other God can make the entire earth tremble this way. So it's not just a poetic statement used to describe God's anger. It's actually a statement about God's authority and power. And it's a reminder that the earth and everything in it is subject to this creator God. And then we have this unique phrase here. It's the foundations of heaven. It's only found here in Psalms 18. It's changed to the foundation of the mountains. And um, the foundation of the mountains is also found in Deuteronomy 32, 22, which if you have been following any of the divine council uh, work by Dr. Heiser, you know, Deuteronomy 32 is like majorly important. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have foundations of the world later on in the same, in the same Psalm in Samuel 22. And verse 15, but the idea that God's fury is shaking both heaven and earth, why? Because one of his children called out to him. And so it's both frightening and inspiring. It kind of depends on your perspective. Are you the one he's coming down to save or are you the one that he's he's saving his kid from? And so, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. It, I think it's easy for us to kind of blow through that, that, that imagery as if, oh, well, it's just part of a song. But, you know, think about what David is saying. David's, as a prophet who sees into the spiritual realm, is saying this is what happens when we call out to God for help. Heaven and earth is shaken because that's how much he loves us and that's how much he desires to come help us. This isn't just like, oh, I guess I'll help him out now. I mean, there's passion, there's commitment, there's love, there's devotion, there's all these big emotions being expressed so much so that the the foundations of the heavens are shaken. That's a big statement. That that's not that's not just a little, you know, okay, thank you, God, for helping me out. It's a big statement. So 
Yeah, which, I mean, and that is actually one of the things, like, I I get that this is beautiful imagery, and I get that this is profound imagery, and some, and like you were talking about, like, it's a big deal, and that's actually, and I hate to to harp too much on uh, modern worship music, because I like a lot of it, but Mm -hmm. there are some, uh, some of the modern songwriters who, who are saying things like, you know, shake the heavens, or, (laughs) or what? was the other one that was or 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 um undo me or i am undone and it's like they're singing i am undone as the heavens shake and you're like yeah no uh, <laughs> i don't buy it you know it's like you know it's just things where they're they're putting these images to out there and it's like i understand you're a good you're a decent songwriter but i don't think you're getting the theological side of this it's not something that we just say flippantly it, right it really has to do with with God's power and and his his willingness and his uh, to to intervene in the the order of creation itself uh, whenever it's for uh, protecting his people who are doing his will. Well, and I I think that so often we forget that these songs and I you know I don't know how far we can take this with modern worship, but I do know that with Psalms that David is supposed to have written, Psalms where David the prophet is describing what he saw in the heavens and he sees in the spiritual realm. We aren't talking about just a nice turn of phrase. We're talking about, you know, a, a, a fact, a truth that's being revealed mm-hmm. that's not just supposed to make you feel all warm and fuzzy. It's supposed to stop you dead in the your tracks. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you you almost have to wonder what kind of music went with this. What, what was the arrangement? Cause I guarantee you, it probably wasn't this nice, soft, lyrical, you know, floaty kind of song. I mean, right. This is, this is war speak. This is, this is a battle cry. And this is reminding you whose, whose army you're on and not just whose army you're on, but whose army is fighting on behalf of you. And so, um, you know, it, it's a pretty, Amazing thing. So verse nine, uh, smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. So what's interesting in this verse to me is not that is that God's described in the same manner that God describes the Leviathan in Job 41. So, I mean, these okay. are the... so, so it, interesting. I'm sorry. I, I, hate to, I, hate, I hate to cut you off. This is kind of interesting to me because on the, uh, I was watching the Bible project and I don't know if this is quite connected, mm-hmm. but one of the, the words that's like used for patient or long suffering or slow to anger is being long of nose. <laughs> because when you get mad, your face turns red and the last thing to turn red is the tip of your nose and to be fully enraged. And so I, I think that's kind of funny because it's that, you know, the smoke comes from his nose. He's so enraged. And when you have that, that level, like you were talking about using the words that describe Leviathan, um, you know, it's kind of like it, for someone who is enraged does embody that chaotic sense. So I mm-hmm. think it's a very interesting picture of all those things coming together whenever you look at the different perspectives. Well, and in Hebrew, the, the word for nose and anger is the same. Right. And so you, you easy way to remember that, the word's off. So out of anger, I knocked his nose off. This, you know, this is 
things easy to remember vocabulary. But yeah, so that anger is always connected with the nose because they're they're homonyms in mm. um, in Hebrew. And yeah, and you got this this imagery of this Leviathan, you know, this uncontrollable raging beast, fire breathing beast. I mean, out of him glowing coals flame forth. I mean, come on, how much angrier can someone get? And to realize this anger isn't over sin. This anger isn't over evil. This anger is over the hurt that's being done to his child. That I mean, when it's directed to you, it's anger born of love. Mm-hmm. I mean, so where so often when we're talking about God being angry, you know, it's he wants to wipe us out. He's ready to judge us. He's ready, you know, he's enraged with wrath and fury over what we've done wrong. And this is him, you know, flipping that and saying, this kind of anger, wrath, and fury is over wrong being done to you as a child. I mean, good grief. That that's like so counter to what so many people have heard about this Old Testament God. And, you know, we hear it over and over again if you're on Facebook anytime at all. The God of the Old Testament is just angry and mean, and he hates everybody. Mm, no, here's David saying the exact opposite. And so I, I love that in God's anger, his fury, his, his, his fierce nature is, is every bit as terrible as this chaos beast. Uh, you know, and, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm like, this is the mama bear on the cosmic level, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and the thing is, we will celebrate the mama bear image. We, we will talk about how great it is that a woman will stand up and fight for her kids and you don't mess with her kids. And <laughs> that's how great of a mom she is. And then whenever we talk about God showing that same kind of protective instinct and that reaction, that I don't know if instinct's the right word to apply to God, but that same kind of protection impulse to, to, um, to protect. It's like, oh, now he's just big and angry. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah. It, I, I did, I saw a meme that was, my, well, mama bear is probably the cutest way to describe the threat of violence towards someone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. But no, well, I, it, I get what you're saying though, because it, it does, we, it, it's kind of used, the, the angry God thing is used against Christianity a lot, mm-hmm. which is just really funny to me. Well, it, I mean, and, and that's the thing. When, when the anger is on our behalf and the anger is what fuels this protection and the, this, this direct intervention of God that not fuels or is, you know, becomes part of the direct intervention of God on our behalf, then why shouldn't we celebrate that every much as a mother protecting her child? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I think we need to remember too how David framed this, this situation. This is a spiritual threat. This is not just human beings. Yes, human beings may be the means through which the threat is being enacted, but the the root of it, the source of it, is in the spiritual realm. Why? Because the enemy does not got, want God establishing his kingdom. He does not want God to be ruling over Israel. He doesn't want the, the Messiah, the next Messiah, to come through this royal lineage. He wants to cut that off. And so, um, Yeah, so God's saying, no, you're not going to mess with my plan. And my plan is that my children survive and not just survive, that they thrive. And so, you know, salvation really has to be a matter of a spiritual response to a spiritual threat. So anyway, I have spent a lot of time with the psalm and I'm normally not like a huge psalm person. I, I 
they just aren't my thing. Uh, I like the narrative. And I was kind of surprised at how much I really enjoyed going through this. So here's, I know I keep saying here's my favorite part. This is the part I was looking for. And I'm going to read several verses. So just bear with me. It says, he bowed, talking about God, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode a cherub and flew and see, and was seen on the wings of the wind. He made the darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water, uh, the brightness before him, coals of flame forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them. Lightning routed them. The channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. And so this, this whole section, this whole section is a description of God's, God's response on behalf of his people. And, you know, there's a lot of borrowed imagery, and we're going to talk about which way this imagery might be borrowed. Uh, in the section that would have been very familiar for anybody who knows uh, the Canaanite myths, the Ugaritic myths, they would, and Dr. Heiser's done a lot of work on this, and uh, Samora even notes that we can make direct comparisons to Ugaritic uh, mythologies and descriptions of God. Uh, Bergen pointed out some Canaanite hymns where we see the same kind of language. Uh, and so for many, this has been a reason to kind of downgrade Judaism as some kind of ripoff of other Canaanite religions. And they're saying that the Bible isn't a unique revelation of God. But I want to stop and talk about how that's imposing an unrealistic standard on language, not just the Bible, but on language itself. Because the problem, whenever we say, oh, well, they say that over there, we're saying that you can't use the same words to describe the same concept because somebody else uses it. We're saying that you cannot use familiar, knowable terminology to describe events because somebody else happens to use it. I mean, we were talking the other day about how. Uh, the days of the week, mm-hmm. you know, are Christians no longer supposed to refer to the days of the week by the names that we're familiar using because they're the names of pagan gods, that they are not the names of Christian gods? How about the, the months? I mean, how many things are we going to say you cannot use those to describe something as a Christian, as a believer, because another culture is the origin of that word? Right. I, it's it's an unrealistic standard, okay? That's it, all it boils down to. Uh, and if you're going to communicate anything of any value and worth to anyone, you have to use shared language. You have to use shared elements of description. And, um, you know, you start where the similarities are, and then you del- delineate the distinctions to show the, the, the separateness of what you're describing. But if you don't have a baseline starting point, which begins with the shared imagery and the shared words, then you can't even communicate your truth to another human being. And having a shared language does not detract from the Bible's uniqueness. That, that's just ridiculous to think that it does. Uh, it, it's actually a, a demonstration of God's uh, compassion for human beings that he would uh, deign to share his 
his message in words that we can understand, in images that we can relate to. So we have uh, woven into this description, uh, you know, illusions of God's acts on behalf of Israel. It's not just allusions to Canaanite mythology. And I did find it interesting that um, my commentaries really didn't talk a whole lot about the fact that these events can actually be tied back to Israel's history, not just Canaanite or Ugaritic mythologies. It, it actually can describe things going on in the Bible. And yes. go ahead. Uh, well, and, and in, the, in the midst of this, I do think it's kind of fun to, to point out um, that what we think of as a cherub probably we often think of as a cherub, probably not the best thing to be thinking about God writing on. The, yeah. You know, and if I, if I remember correctly, the, the cherub, the cherub or karuv is the word would have been, mm-hmm. uh, would be more like a bull-like creature as opposed to the little chubby baby that's actually the puto or the puti, plural, uh, mm-hmm. in the Italian Renaissance art. Yeah, and we're. I wanted to go into a little bit of what a cherub was or is, according to uh, is is more appropriate because they still exist. It's not like they quit existing whenever the Old Testament was finished. Um, still very much a part Are of. Are you our sure? Reality. I mean, everything changed after Jesus, right? I mean, like God just scrapped the whole first of. You uh, want of to give me an history? Is it that's what happened, right? That's <laughs> right. No, no. And then <laughs> he decided to scrap all of history, and now you're the most important thing in the world. That's is yeah. that that's yeah. how it goes, right? Yeah, because in the Old Testament, the individual doesn't matter. Uh, oh, wait a minute, I forgot what we were reading. Uh, so yeah, no, and that's that's the thing. I mean, the heavens still exist. Every description of the heavens that the Old Testament writers gave is still in existence. The, the cherubim are here. The seraphim are still existent. I mean, all of these things still inhabit not just the heavenly spaces. Angels came down and they ate with Abraham. Okay? Mm-hmm. Still happens. They, they, they uh, warned Lot of the destruction, destruction of Sodom. Still happens. Uh, you know, the thing is, most of the time, the people who encountered angels didn't know they were angels in that moment. This is what, you know, there's a verse in the New Testament that talks about entertaining angels unaware. Mm-hmm. Uh, still happens. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, so what we need to look at, I think, isn't so much whether or not these imageries relate to Canaanite or Ugaritic or, you know, even Egyptian mythologies. We need to look at what is David really drawing from? Well, David's drawing from his faith tradition and personal personal history and his uh, national history in order to describe some really big truths. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can look at the darkness. Uh, was his canopy thick clouds? The gathering of water. I mean, all of a sudden we're back in Exodus, where specifically Exodus twenty one through twenty nine, when there's a darkness that is so intense. It's a supernatural darkness that the Bible says it could be felt. And, you know, the idea of a darkness that dark is, I don't think I've ever experienced that. I mean, I've been in some dark places, but I don't think I've ever felt the darkness. But that's how dark it was in Egypt. This isn't just as a lack of light because, you know, you turn the light on light and the darkness recedes. This is darkness that invades. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, this is a total reversal of anything we've known about darkness, of what we 
even today with our, you know, physics and science can answer questions. This is a darkness that invades. Um, Exodus 12, 12 tells us that this, this judgment in, in uh, Egypt was actually God executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt, specifically the, the Passover and presumably, you know, the prior plagues. And so the plague of darkness in the Egyptian realm would have represented God's superiority to Ra, the Egyptian sun god. And Canaan, the, this god, uh, would have been a different name. Shamash uh, would have been one of the names. But even though the name is different, the essence is still the same. And so the fact that God has dominion over the sun and the light and all of these things is huge because this isn't God blotting out or having to overcome the sun in order to create darkness. God actually can bring darkness no matter what the sun's doing. Mm -hmm. So the sun still shines. God still invades with darkness when it's appropriate. So David is announcing God's and affirming God's superiority over the promised land, not just in Egypt. The idea that God is ruler and a sovereign over both Egypt and Canaan, this new place that will be known as Israel, is that's a huge step forward and that's a huge statement about the the superiority and the authority of god in contrast to the other gods that were bound geographically to their position on the earth and so uh, and we talked about that before i didn't go into the notes but i mean we talked we know that deuteronomy 32 8 9 that different places in geography and lands were appointed to the sons of god that they were given authority in that area. But then we also, when we look back at a lot of ancient mythologies, we find out that if a god is removed from that specific piece of land, that specific country, that they are actually thought to lose power. And it kind of plays into that same kind of ideology. Yeah, which, which is why it's important that we pay attention when we're reading this narrative, we see God displaying power in Egypt. We see him displaying power in the wilderness. We see him displaying power in the promised land. This wasn't accidental. So, yeah, that's what we've got going on here. And because we have Yahweh can be powerful here, he can be powerful here, and he can be powerful here, and he can be powerful even in when they go into exile, you know, even into to, uh, uh, Babylon, Babylon and, and things like that. Uh, you know, we're seeing that this is not a God who loses his power. It's not tied to what's been allotted to him. Right. He's the one who's in control of all of it. So that's really cool. I, it, it really is. I mean, I, I, and it really is. And the only reason why it's cool is because we actually take the spiritual realm and all of it's functioning as real, as something that, that is not just some kind of abstract ideology or, or some way of, of proclaiming some you know, mystical, um, maybe true, poetic way of saying something. You know, we're saying that there literally is a spiritual realm that God rules over, and this is part of what makes him such a great God, is that he doesn't just have to rule over puny human beings. He actually, these, these other beings, these amazing beings that blew people's minds when they reveal themselves, they're real. And God still has authority over that. And, you know, and the other really cool part of this is because when we look back at the, the plagues and we look back at Egypt, 
you know, God, why is he, why is he enacting the plagues? Because a nation cried out, because this group of people cry, cried out mm-hmm. and asked for God to, to respond to them. And so the idea of God moving on behalf of a nation, Israel was kind of comfortable with that. Um, you know, they, they got that, that idea. But here's the thing. David is saying, I, as an individual, called out, and this is God responded to me, the individual, as he did for the entire nation. Mm-hmm. That's the, the big kicker in the psalm. Now, when you take that to Psalm 18, and when you have Psalm 18, and every individual can make the same statement about themselves and their interaction with God, oh my goodness. Because we tend to overlook, and I didn't have didn't mean to go here, we tend to overlook that the first plague in Egypt was not enacted for the nation. The right. first plague in Egypt was enacted for Sarah, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. woman. So the idea that God will actually move on behalf of an individual, and not just important individuals, any individual, the most marginalized, the unseen. I mean, Sarah is an infertile woman. She's nobody in that society. Abraham couldn't even value her as his wife. He's, you know, as far as he was concerned, he was, she was a sister, not a part of his future destiny. And so the fact that uh, God said, no, she's important enough for me to respond to, huge. And here's David reaffirming what God showed originally. And so, um, you know, I, I just, I, I love this. And so, okay, he rode on a cherub. We're going to talk about what a cherub was. <laughs> um, as you already pointed out, not cute babies. Those are the puti. Um, cherubs are a particular kind of spiritual being. They're, they're kind of described as a mashup of various creatures. They can be the bull. They can be eagle. They can be... Um, several several different configurations of human and animal uh, the main thing is they they are not they're not the kind of angel that gets confused for a human being when they show up right and okay. and and I, I have even heard oh sorry that was a little loud i have even heard them uh, described as like a sphinx like at times mm-hmm. uh, a, a wing sphinx is a very common descriptor which would actually so. be really cool, considering how much uh, stock the Egyptians put in sphinxes. Like, not only did I feed your gods, I, I, I took his ride, too. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. And a lot of gods were seen as riding on a cherub or a winged sphinx. This was their, their methodology of transportation. And we'll come back to that, because uh, the first mention we have of a cherub, which this should kind of set the scene for everybody who wants to study this, is this is a being wielding a powerful fiery sword outside of Eden to keep humanity from crossing back into that territory. So this is the first job we're told that they have. They're guardians. They are guardians of the boundary between the spiritual and the physical. This gives us a huge glimpse into what their role is. Um, Cause it's not just an Eden. It, it, it's actually every, boundary of the spiritual and the physical. And this is most notably depicted on the Ark of the Covenant, where God's Shekinah glory is manifest where over the cherubim mm-hmm. on the Ark of the Covenant, because that's the boundary. That, that's the physical boundary between God's realm and the human realm. And so when we have God crossing over this boundary, 
we should totally expect to see cherubs. And by the way, we should remember too that the 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 Ark of the Covenant, as important as it is to humanity, and we think about it being this great icon of, of God's presence and faith, the Bible says it's just his footstool. You know, it, it's just mm-hmm. where he rests his feet. Mm-hmm. It, it's nothing big. And so when God rides on the cherub, it, you know, I think a helpful way to think of this is say that the president decided to go visit another country or an, another foreign leader decided to visit the U.S. They're not coming alone. They aren't going to get their Delta tickets and hire an Uber and show up at the Capitol building or what have you. They are coming with bodyguards. They're coming with personal assistants. They're coming with the, their uh, press corps. They're coming. They're coming with an entourage. Mm-hmm. And the larger the entourage, an armored limousine, armored limousine. Hey, the Pope mobile. Let's think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. The, but the larger the entourage, the the more important the person making the trip is. Mm-hmm. And so the these cherubs act like royal or spiritually royal bodyguards. Not that God needs it, but escorts maybe might be a better um, way to put it. To to kind of bridge that gap it's not necessarily god needs them i mean come on the pope doesn't need a pope mobile let's be honest he can walk but you know the it, it's not that god needs him it, it, it's the idea that because he is important there's certain honors and there's certain um what's the word i'm looking for regalia <laughs> yeah i mean yeah there, there's this you do these things to express his significance. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the cherub are not necessary for God to get here is what the big thing, because that, that's the thing that a lot of people, um, I've heard critiques saying, well, why does your God need to write a cherub? I mean, he's got to have that to come down from heaven. No, no, he doesn't. But whenever he chooses to make a grand entrance, this is how he does it. And so, well, yeah. You you don't need a suit to go to the Oscars, but if you're going, you you know you don't want to show up in tennis shoes, right? Well, and, and he, you know I will tell you. Okay, so I had one really cool experience where I got to show up at an opera in a limousine, and it was really cool because we pulled up to the red carpet. They opened the door, and like people started taking my photograph. They didn't know who I was. Um, dad had just borrowed limo from the company he was working for at the time, but there was something about making that kind of entrance. I just got to say it was pretty cool. Yeah. And so, I mean, they went home and they deleted the pictures, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> was that, was that before digital cameras? Oh, they may have gone home and just, you know, thrown out the films. So. Like got their film developed. <laughs> Who is this? Was this a, <laughs> so, little, yeah, little but... do they know. They're... <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I'm important. Uh, no, but the, the, yeah, the, there's making this grand entrance. It says something about the, the level, of, level of prestige. And now here's what I think, because people, I, I think people read this backwards. People go, oh, well, look, your God is trying to be like the Canaanite and the Ugaritic gods and making the same kind of entrance. I see this as God going, no, this, this was mine and I'm not surrendering it to those guys. Yeah, well, yeah, it's you know? kind of like, well, no, know your original, like <laughs> the other guys were trying to copy. Exactly. And so, you know, I think the other gods tried to copy this because why? Because they knew this is how the God made 
his entrance. So how do you elevate yourself by ripping off of the real thing? And so um, I think, you know, that's a lesson for us too. I think that there mm-hmm. are things that we shouldn't surrender to other belief systems and say, oh, well, that's evil because it's, it's ours. Okay. If God made it, it's ours and we need to claim it. So um, I just looked at the time. We, we still haven't even got through that passage I read off, but we will come back to it um, in our next episode because we still have more stuff to cover. Mm-hmm. cover. Um, we're at page 55 of the notes. So, you know, we still have a, a little bit more to go and that's just verse seven. Yeah. <laughs> so. No, I mean, I really, have, I, I've enjoyed a lot of this and, and I want to, I really want to talk more about the, uh, the darkness and the, the winds and things like that next time, because that's, there's a lot of stuff in here where we don't often talk about God in these terms. So. Well, God doesn't interact with, with, the physical realm anymore we, we've relegated him to heaven and he just needs to stay there and you know when he this is we got to get past that idea right and so right. It, it, this is this language is used to demonstrate he controls all of creation mm-hmm. and so uh, that should inspire us because if he controls all of creation then we can count on him to have the power to save yep so okay I'll quit talking now because, I, you know, I've enjoyed this. This has been a really fun psalm to go through. Oh, it's it's so. been good. It's been good. Well, hey, uh, hopefully everyone else out there enjoyed it. If you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC is the place you can find us on all the social media and RavenCreekSC.com. Uh, for this show, other shows, and sometimes show notes when we finally get them posted. Um, but that being said, come join us. Be part of the conversation. We are always are, are up for that as we can. So anyway, everyone have a great day and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast, a Raven Creek social club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.